really that you could apply process to solving any type of complex problem. I've been fortunate in that my mentor was a man named Craig Barrett, who later became the CEO and chairman of the board of Intel. But what he taught me is that if you use statistical process control, quality improvement processes, all those manufacturing processes, no matter what problem you're solving, that you can actually break down what the problem is and identify the underlying cause of that problem. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organizations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organizations Thrive. Uh, Today, I have the great pleasure of Lisa Gable on the show. Uh, Good morning and good afternoon to you, Lisa. Good morning and good afternoon to you too. Excellent stuff. Uh, Obviously, you're all the way in uh, in the US of A. And uh, just tell the audience that you are a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller and recognized as a turnaround mastermind and innovative businesswoman. Uh, For more than 30 years, you've been called to turn around failing organizations. A little clue of what we might be talking about later on. And, and as a CEO, former U.S. ambassador and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, uh, you've orchestrated success, successful turnarounds of private and public organization in all industries. Uh, so I look forward to that conversation. But before we go there, Lisa, I'd like to ask you, what do you love about what you do? Well, I love being able to help people. And what I mean by that is I've had a plethora of really unusual experiences, but being able to bring those experiences and my network to bear in order to solve complex problems that have true meaning and impact, that's what makes me excited to get up in the morning. Fantastic. So you've been busy for the last 30 years and involved with uh, companies uh, and helping them sort of, uh, I guess, return from perhaps what we call failure or things have just gone a little bit wrong. Um, what, what just, I guess, just a, a snapshot of some some learnings you've gained in that time, not, not a whole thing, just some sort of snapshots, what you've learned about business in that sort of time. Sure. When I got involved in the process is when I left the Reagan White House and Defense Department and I went to Intel Corporation. And you may remember that back then, and it seems very familiar because the same thing's going on now, the U.S. had lost market share to the Japanese. And so Intel was really making an aggressive push to standardize on the Intel chip worldwide, uh, which they successfully did, uh, eventually getting 85% of the market during the 1990s. However, one of the issues that they ran into is that they'd run their first consumer campaign. It was called the X86 campaign. And people who are my age may remember those big billboards with the red X through a 3 day six. Uh, But they were involved in a seven-year lawsuit with AMD. And they didn't really understand what they had done wrong. And they needed to get a grasp of that before they uh, rolled out the Intel Inside program on which they planned to spend billions of dollars. And so that was my first turnaround experience. And it was amazing and taught me so much that I've now been able to apply in business government philanthropy. And what was your, on reflection of that uh, turnaround experience, what was your sort of key learnings? 
really that you could apply process to solving any type of complex problem. I've been fortunate in that my mentor was a man named Craig Barrett, who later became the CEO and chairman of the board of Intel. But what he taught me is that if you use statistical process control, quality improvement processes, all those manufacturing processes, no matter what problem you're solving, that you can actually break down what the problem is and identify the underlying cause of that problem and measure how you're going to be able to improve upon it through the new systems that you develop. Okay. And so we'll come on to that in terms of how you, how you apply that and how you and, and unpick that, that process in a moment. Um, I want to get your, your thoughts really on what you think and what the reason might be, what might be that why some businesses actually do start to fail. What is it? And, and what are the telltale signs they need to look out for before they start slipping and going sort of the wrong way, so to speak. Well, there are a multitude of different problems, and I'll just name a few. One is that people tend to tweak things. And so what I tell people is that when I walk into a situation, it's as if I'm seeing a house that had an architect to begin with, but then they added a porch and they're like, oh, let's add a chimney. Oh, there's a backyard uh, you know, experience that we want to add. And they did it in sort of a manner that they were solving a situation versus a holistic approach to solving the problem. And so at that point, you have this very unwieldy design that no longer works. And so tweaking doesn't work. Uh, Secondarily is hubris. I think that one of the biggest problems that we have, both in government, business, and philanthropy, is where people begin to focus on themselves and what the benefit they will receive through the actions they're taking on behalf of the organization. And I am a big believer that we are stewards of any organization that we serve, We are there for a moment in time. The organization existed before us. It needs to exist after us. And therefore, each of our decisions need to actually take into account not what benefits us as an individual, but what benefits the organization so that it's sustainable. Okay. So the the tweaking piece piece of it, and I like the idea of your house adding on bits and becoming a little bit of a out of control. How do we create... Um, I suppose not such process or structure or, or a culture that is adverse to the tweaking. Because obviously, I appreciate tweaking. People see that as you know, new CEO comes in, they add a little bit. How do we make it that it's holistic, and how do we make it that it's will take the business forward and not get into a place where it might start to slip? When I start with any um, activity or organization, what I what I tell the board, what I tell the executives is if you could wave a magic wand, what did you want this to look like? If you could start from scratch, if you were starting this organization today, how would you design it? Taking into account the innovations that we have today, the market opportunities or the challenges that we have. And then conceptually burn it down to the ground. And I don't mean you have to burn, you have to start completely over within the organization. That always really scares people when I say it, but you mentally have to get there. You really need to think about how would I design this today if I were starting it today? How do I get to that perfect vision of the future that I want to have? And so what I recommend at that stage is that they audit what they're currently doing and line up their current activities and rank and rate them as to whether or not those activities are the thing, and you really can only choose so many, I call them jobs one, two, and three, to get you to that end state that is where you need to be in order to be successful, thrive, and competitive. So this is taking more the getting a long-term view of where you want to go, that almost that vision, uh, and not getting in danger of just doing things as of today and just building slowly and 
building hot jobs all over the place, but almost encapsulating it in the bigger piece, I guess. Absolutely. You've got to get back to job one. What is the primary purpose for your activity in your organization? If you were only allowed to choose one thing that you could do, what would that one thing be? Because when we have a market with such high inflation and we have a geopolitical system that currently is is got a lot of risk to it, you need to make sure that the one thing, that thing that's going to keep your organization alive is the one thing on which you focus. And what I call jobs two and three are your they're your backup singers. There are two other things that you must do very, very well in order to achieve that primary objective. And so if we go back and we look at Intel's original problem and challenges back in the 90s, which is getting repeated today, it was all about standardization on semiconductors. They knew in order to be successful, they needed to have everyone standardize on their semiconductors. And Like I said, 30 years later, we're seeing now that same conversation play out. And it also benefits us from a competitive standpoint uh, within the markets in which we serve. So is this getting to a place where we get a real clarity on our vision, on our purpose of our business? And I guess, you know, the last two years, obviously that's changed so much, but certainly people have been challenged or perhaps got a little bit confused or a little bit, it's got a bit misty in terms of what that might be, isn't it? So it's almost going back to that place of saying, where do I really want to take this business? And I guess if you're a new CEO jumping in, you've got to take that business on that journey again, haven't you? You do. And what I told people, you know, even in my own organization, I ran a medical research organization. And I said during the the two years of the pandemic, I said, we're doing a lot of singing and dancing to keep the lights on. That's what we're doing. But that's not our job. Our job is not singing and dancing. But it was so difficult to do our job, which was getting in and doing clinical trials within medical research organizations, that we had to uh, we had to be showing interesting things to our donors while simultaneously, very systematically, but laboriously ensuring that we kept moving the clinical trials forward, despite the challenges that we were having. And so I had a little team out there sort of, uh, sort of entertaining people while in the background, we were building the sets and the structures required to keep the organization forward. And I think you see that today with uh, Clubhouse and podcasts and other things, which are reducing uh, interest. They were the singing and dancing. They weren't your job. They weren't the primary reason your organization existed. So people now that they're getting back into physically going into work, they have to focus on, and we are what we're realizing is the world's not opening up in the manner in which we thought it would. We have got to be hyper, hyper focused in order to accomplish the primary objectives that are required for our organization and our shareholders to see value. And how do we, you know, because it's great that the senior management may get to a place where they get that clarity again of the future and they start to, you know, start to develop strategies that will start and get, uh, get them closer to that. How do they then take the organization and the people? Because it's all very well having visions and strategies. You've got to have a sense of the people and the culture to take it within you. You need to be extremely transparent and extremely crisp. And what I do in all of these situations, when I walk into an organization that I'm taking over, uh, and I know that I have a lot of changes, I am very 
specific about what I am going to do in the first 100 days. And I and I am very transparent because people are going to be anxious anyway. So you might as well rip off the band-aid and make them feel better about their anxiety, which is we're going to do these things. These are the challenges that we have. These are the changes that we're going to make. And then what I would do is every quarter, I would have an update meeting where I'd walk through, here are the changes that we made, here are the results of those changes, here's where we ran into a problem. You can't fix everything at the same time. There's you're always going to find something you weren't expecting to find. So we're going to shift. And the reason we're going to shift is so we can solve the problem. And so you have to be very, very detailed. And also, I'm a big believer in OKRs. Um, John Doerr wrote a book called Measure What Matters. And I make mm. everyone read that book who works with me, which is that you want to identify what are the five top objectives that I as an individual have to do? What are the quantitative things I'm going to measure those objectives? And then how does that work with the objectives that my boss has. And so specificity, measurement, clear objectives, that's how we keep everybody on track. And and I guess the last point is you have to acknowledge what makes them uncomfortable. You can't go through change without making people uncomfortable. You just can't. That's what it is. But what you can do is you can acknowledge why they're not comfortable. You can acknowledge why they're not happy. And by the mere fact of showing that transparent humanity, you will get more people on your side. Yeah, and that's important, isn't it? That, that transparency, that openness, that uh, that dialogue we need to have. I think it's it's not just a one-way, it's a two-way. And, and it's important to understand where people are at, what people are feeling, and as you say, acknowledge that along the way. It doesn't mean we stop doing things. It doesn't mean we digress, but it, it's got to bring people and be that almost like empathetic, isn't it, as you go along and, and, and interact with people. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the bottom line is if you've been run in to do a turnaround, you're going to have to do a riff in a lot of cases, a restructuring. And there's no way around that, but you might as well be honest about it. And you also have to be caring. One thing I remind people is that people don't just disappear. We're not in that Marvel comic books Avenger where they all disappear for five years and you don't have to deal with them. They come back. You're in an industry. You're going to see those people again. So mm-hmm. be, be careful in how you manage exits, maintain the relationship relationships. If somebody did a great job, even if their uh, sector or their business is no longer going to be job one for you because Mm. you've now made a determination, that's not their fault. There's a lot of factors that have gone into building that unwieldy house. In some cases, the seeds for uh, destruction were sort of planted 15 years ago and people have been going along their happy way. So uh, being able to uh, be open with people, honest with people, Know that hard changes are going to happen. You can't avoid them, uh, but also helping people with where they go next. Uh, you never know when you're going to encounter them again. You may work for them. You may hire them again. Uh, you may be a competitor of theirs. So at least maintain a relationship. Mm. Just the very word turnaround gets people going, doesn't it? In the sense of, oh, no, someone's going to come in and be quite aggressive. They're going to be do lots of changes and it's, and it's sort of and all that emotion starts to kick in, doesn't it? And, and as you go into businesses and do these sort of turnarounds, you're dealing with a lot of emotions. I mean, you obviously got the strategies and all the thinking stuff, but actually you're dealing with huge amounts of emotions with people from all parts of the organization, haven't you? 
You are. And you're not only dealing with emotion within your organization, you're dealing with emotion in your customer base. If you're a philanthropy, you're dealing with emotion from your donors. Uh, there are a lot of people who are dependent upon the organization to do something they need them to do. And so I do, I'm, I'm always exhausted by the end of a turnaround and usually I take a period of time off because it is exhausting. One of the things I do is shuttle diplomacy. And I, and I try, if I can, Zoom makes it a little easier to physically go and sit down with somebody and explain why I'm making the changes that I'm making. I listen to what it is they want that organization to accomplish. And I can either acknowledge that we can still do that, or I can be very honest with them and tell them it's not in the cards. But by that process, and I've done this, you know, I learned this in the State Department, that process of going and sitting with people, having a conversation with them. But again, change is not just about the people internally. It affects a lot of people. No organization exists that doesn't have customers. It doesn't matter if you're government, your voters are your customers, right? Those are your constituents. Philanthropy, those, those individuals who benefit from the philanthropy are your customers. Revenue is a critical factor. So either somebody's buying your stuff or they're donating money to your entity to exist. All of those people have to be spoken with, acknowledged and incorporated into the conversation in order to ensure that you have people applauding when you go over the finish line, not sticking out their feet and tripping you. <laughs> I, like that, yes. I love your um, analogies, Lisa. They're very good. Um, and so in terms of um, obviously your challenges that you may face, obviously, and, and obviously the turnaround in itself is a, is a challenge because obviously you're, you're turning around that. But how do you involve people in helping you navigate those challenges and, I guess, bringing people in along with you? And you've talked a little bit about that. Just, just explain a bit more about it. Explore that uh, aspect of things, really. I really take detailed notes. And what I do is I sit and I write down who told me something. And usually there is a pain point that has caused an individual to engage with the entity that you represent. And that pain point will be different for every single person involved. And so I write down what's their pain point. When I, I ran a self-regulatory initiative for 16 food and beverage companies who are facing um, increased taxes related to sugar consumption, as well as increased regulation around sugars and fats in their products. They were all food and beverage manufacturers. Each company had a concern that was very distinct to their product line. We had Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Campbell Soup, General Mills. Um, so we had soup, bread, pepper, you know, pepperidge farms. We had everything and um, ice cream. And, uh, and so I wrote it down and I, and as we made a change that I knew would signal to them that something might happen that would affect that thing that was most important to them, I'd call them in advance. So I'd call up Nestle and I'd go, hey, we've just had this occur. And when you hear it, you may be concerned that it's going to impact product X. I want to assure you that it's not going to, and here's why. Um, I worked with a lot of uh, activists, both in the patient community space, as well as uh, in the food and beverage health and wellness space. And so I've, I've dealt with a lot of activists over my career and activists who don't necessarily like the organizations I represent very much, right? That's, that's the nature of activism. Um, and so I would call them in advance of a press conference and I would tell them what we were going to say and what we were going to do. And they may have not been happy about it, but by demonstrating respect 
for their position, their voice within the conversation, and being willing to let them know in advance so they were well prepared. I was taking a risk, but at the same time, I was showing and demonstrating respect. And we do that in foreign policy, right? You go to your allies, you show them the respect, you give them the dignity of being acknowledged, and then you have to move forward with what you have to move forward with. And so that is a part of the process. It's very deliberate and it's very careful and it requires seeing the world through the point of view of other people. And what makes them unhappy is really the thing you've got to understand the best in order to be able to uh, move change forward. Mm. It's interesting, just, just been listening to you for the last sort of nearly 20 minutes. And uh, two things that come to mind in terms of your approach. And I think it's often probably a, a misunderstanding of, of people, turnaround type of individuals where they're quite sort of cutthroat focus and you're very focused. I know that, um, but you're demonstrating the real human side as well in terms of the people side. And that's really important, bringing people with you, understanding people, being empathetic and different perspectives, uh, just back to what you're talking about. But also this other aspect is it seems to be communication is, is all the way along, you know, almost that, you know, talking to people for a press conference. And I don't know if that's a good summary of how you approach things, but it, it feels how you approach things, very human, very focused on communication uh, to sort of get the turnarounds happen. It's funny you should say that because I tell people when they say, well, what are you? I'm like, I'm a communicator. That's what I am. And, you know, I may be a strategist. I may work with process and design new systems, but communication is the most important thing. And we see that in politics, right? I mean, it's why presidents, prime ministers, um, Kings and queens is why they run into any you know any problems. Whoever whoever that head of state is needs to be a good communicator. Whoever that um, organizational change agent is needs to be a good communicator. And the way in which you present yourself, uh, the manner in which you engage with people is such an important criteria. And so we can look throughout history of individuals who were successful and, and those who weren't. Um, I always, I love studying history. And so I um, tell people I've studied a lot about Roman history. And what always struck me is that Caesar was always the one who was talking to the troops. And there are certain generals that you know of who have been more hands-on um, going out there, talking with their troops, understanding their troops, walking the line, listening to what people are saying. And I personally, that is, that's, the, that, that's what I like to emulate. Um, George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, um, Bush 41, the first president Bush was a note writer. And so he wrote personal handwritten notes to people thanking them. And, um, and it's again, another piece of, uh, that I saw that someone else had done that I try to emulate, which is to send notes. Thank you so much for doing this. Acknowledge people. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like your approach. That's really good. And, and I think communication is, is vital in not just in turnaround, clearly it's in, in, in any organization, it's that communication. And so you don't get that misunderstanding and, and then that working and getting alongside people and almost that personal touch. Now, we know that with, with what comes with the turnaround, what comes with um, uh, trying to take something that perhaps is failing or about to fail is, is new ideas, is innovation, is, is, is creativity because um, you need that because you need to think a bit more outside the box possibly. You need to think about new ways of getting and your revenue or whatever it may be. How have you 
work with organizations to create that culture that people start to innovate and people start to step out of their comfort zone and really do push the boundaries because you've got to create almost a almost a psychological safe environment and how do you do that quite quickly if you're new to the business right and you've got to be willing to hear even if somebody has a dumb idea i'd rather hear a dumb idea and work through it then then just shut them down you don't shut people down um you know there are a couple of things that i've run into throughout years uh one is not created here syndrome well if it wasn't created here it's not good and so i do uh in order to get around that i have teams participate in benchmarking and when i have them benchmark aren't necessarily direct competitors i make them benchmark companies that are outside the realm of competition and uh, so it might be clothing companies it could be car companies it could be pharmaceutical companies and by doing that you help them move out of their objection of the not created here. You get them to understand that other people in other industries are doing something very similar to what they're doing, but they're doing it in a different way that's successful. I think the other is that um, disagree and commit, which was a big Intel saying. I worked at a company that was very passive aggressive. And it was funny because people within the company uh, would would have conversations. And then you knew when you walked out of the room, the knives were coming out. And so it was very destructive uh, and demoralizing for anybody who was trying to make change within that company. And they and I had someone pull me aside and go, you know, you're kind of different. And I said, yeah, I was raised in the Intel culture, which was uh, Andy Grove, who would walk into a conference room and, you know, he's uh, Hungarian and very boisterous and loud uh, and, you know, and, and very specific about what he wanted to see, but there was an agreement within Intel, which is you you got it all out on the table. You may have gotten it out loudly, but when you walked out the door, everybody had to disagree and commit. There was no backstabbing. And so Mm -hmm. I would say those two things, not created here and sort of a passive aggressive approach are the two items you've got to kill off. Instead, you've got to listen to what people say, get them to think about other sectors outside of their own. And then most importantly, when you walk out the door, you're a united front, you are not going to be stabbing each other in the back. And, and what comes with, you know, creating cultures is role model, isn't it? Making sure that as a leader, you are going by those uh, ways, your ways of working, ways of approaching it, because that embeds that culture that creates that, oh, well, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it as well. It's when you get a dissonance when people don't agree, don't they? Absolutely. And the thing is, admit when you're wrong. Look, you're working. The last organization, I did an 83% restructure. Did I make a correct decision every single time? No. (laughs) (laughs) And then right after we did the restructure, we did the restructure the first 18 months, we raised 85, you know, $75 million. And then COVID hit. It was it was the most aggravating thing, right? Wait, like I literally was on the road raising money, finally gotten through the restructure. I was so happy. I was running up the hill and boom, here was COVID. We made decisions. Some of them were good decisions. Some of them were bad decisions. And I do think, I think it was IBM used to have the fail quickly motto, motto, which is you do have to fail quickly. You're going to have to try things. Again, that gets back to what we were talking about before. You need to let people try something. But what you want to do is you want to try it, set some quantitative goals of what you've got to accomplish in order to see if you think it's going to work, uh, both within the time limits that you have, as well as the financials that you have. And then you move on very rapidly. And that is disruptive. But at the same time, we aren't perfect people. And so if you make a mistake, own it. Tell people that you made a mistake because that will enable others to feel far more confident about coming to you when they've made a mistake because you sure as heck don't want people hiding stuff. 
No, not at all. And um, just just before we finish, um, just your thoughts and perhaps, I don't know, that's one big advice for companies right now who are facing ever-increasing uncertainty. We thought we had a huge amounts with COVID, and now we've got even more inflation rates and everything else that's going on in the world and affecting lots of markets and, you know, sort of energy prices, impacts, cost of living crisis. Um What's your advice to a CEO now they're listening in terms of how they should navigate and what's the best way of approaching that? Focus, 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 focus. It is it is the only thing you can do right now is you've got to focus on your primary objective of what's going to keep your company alive. And there's a lot of competition right out there for your attention through ESG and a lot of other uh, things that are being presented to you. But the reality is you're not going to be able to accomplish any of those societal objectives unless you focus on your core competency and make sure that you are indeed uh, executing on the uh, needs of your customer. Number one thing. Focus like that. Just keep focused. Well, thank you for your time today, Lisa. It's been great. And uh, I think you've given lots of advice, lots of impact and uh, demonstrated that turnaround is not a, a bad thing. It's a real positive thing and how you approach it as well in your human communicative way as well. Uh, so yeah, thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com.